You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So, New Year's Eve, 1994, I think, or 1993, maybe. This guy I'd been seeing, dating, uh, we'd been hanging out. It was okay. The sex was okay. He was really cute but kind of just okay in the personality department and the brain pan department. And we went out and I really did kind of like him and I thought, you know, that, that maybe there's something there. I'm going to keep seeing him. We've been going out for like three or four months, five months. We go out on New Year's Eve and we go out to this bar where I am – uh, hosting something at this bar, some New Year's Eve little thingamajob. And I'm in drag, which is um, something I used to be caught in every once in a while. And we're in this bar and I'm with my boyfriend of three or four months and we, you know, we're having fun. We're getting drunk and hanging out and there's some other things floating around the room besides alcohol and we are having that as well. And like halfway through the party, you know, halfway through the night, it's New Year's Eve. I give him a kiss and then – Somehow we get separated in the crowd and then I don't know where he went and uh, I, I'm not actually – I realized that you know my New Year's Eve date has gone AWOL and I'm kind of not that upset and that's not a good indication for the future happiness, strength, longevity of a relationship. If your New Year's Eve date disappears on New Year's Eve and you're not at all distraught, well, maybe that person isn't going to be your New Year's Eve date next year. And so I, you know, leave. I go to another bar and I run into this guy that I'd actually met on Christmas Eve in a different bar and had made out with for a moment in the bathroom of that bar, which is I guess a habit with me somehow. Anyway, because the night I met Terry, we wound up making out in a bathroom in a bar. It's a long story that I wrote two books about. Anyway, I, I meet this other guy and we go home together. We go – we pick up. You know, He was single on New Year's Eve. I was not and then suddenly I was and we ran into each other on 2nd Avenue, Belltown in Seattle. I went home with him and it was the beginning of a very beautiful um, short-lived relationship but a nice one. And then you know, sometime on January 1st at 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening – uh, my phone rings, which was a kind of a boxy thing that sat on a table in your living room at the time. My phone rings uh, and it didn't have anything like caller ID then. So you just kind of had to answer it and be surprised. could be your mother. It could be your father. It could be your boss. It could be the police. It could be the president. You just never knew. The phone was just a mystery box when it rang. And it's the manager of the bar that I had been at the night before on New Year's Eve at the, where the party that I had hosted and I was in drag and I had been there with the guy I was dating with my then boyfriend who went missing asking me to please come to the bar and collect my boyfriend who had passed out in the bar in my dressing room which I didn't realize and neither had anyone else. So they had left and locked up the bar and come back later the next day to clean up and there he was sound asleep, passed out in the bar and they looked at him and wondered whose he was and he woke up and asked where I was and they called me to come and collect my messy hungover, still drunk, still other stuff to boyfriend, which then I ran and did and I took him home to his home 
and we never saw each other again. I don't have New Year's Eve like that anymore. You reach a stage of life where you just don't go to bars and clubs on New Year's Eve anymore. New Year's Eve, this New Year's Eve, tonight I am snowboarding with my family. We are doing the get up at the crack of dawn and go snowboarding thing that we do every year and have done for a decade or more. And then the struggle to stay awake until midnight thing. That's what I do on New Year's Eve now and I kind of love it. It's really great. It's fun. Which is not to say that the go out, get drunk, get other stuff, hook up, you know, bring one boyfriend to a party, go home with some other guy's boyfriend or go home with a brand new other boyfriend. You know what? That stuff was fun too. And the stuff we do now is fun as well. One of the things I hate about old people, uh, people my-ish age, not old, middle-aged – is that they look back on the way they were in their 20s and early 30s and they feel like they have to say that was meaningless or that was stupid or that was a waste or that was unimportant and I – you know, now I know what's important which is snowboarding with my family and trying desperately to stay awake until midnight. Now I'm doing the real good and serious stuff. Now I'm living a grown-up life and I just don't do that. I look back on those times and think, you know what? Those were great times and these are great times. And so whatever you're doing this New Year's Eve, if you're having the crazy, drinky, druggy, run around town, be messy, out there on amateur night, just tearing it up, if that's your thing tonight, that's awesome. Enjoy your thing. That's a great thing. Those are great times. If your thing's now like my thing, home with the family, fighting to stay up till midnight, snowboarding in the day or whatever it is you did all day, hanging out with friends, just having a little dinner party opening some expensive champagne and fighting to stay awake till midnight. If that's your, you know what? That's a great thing too. You don't really have to choose and you can even mix it up a little bit. You can still have your nights out. You can still have your terrors. It really doesn't have to be either or. One of the things I hate about people over the course of their lives is people who have children will look back on when they were childless and say, oh, my life had no meaning then. Now it has meaning. You know what? Your life had meaning then. It did. And you shouldn't say to people who do not have children that they're doing something wrong or that their lives are meaningless because they're childless. That's bullshit. And you would have been angry at anybody who had said that to you before you had children. Why are you saying it to people now that you do? People who are out there tearing it up don't want to hear from people who are not out there tearing it up that that's bullshit and then that's meaningless. It isn't. It's a wonderful time. It's a great time. It's a formative time. It's a fucking blast. And people who aren't doing that anymore, we don't want to hear from the kids tearing it up that we're doing it wrong, that what we're doing is meaningless and boring and stupid and we're dying out there because we're not. We're having a good time too and that's what's important. Have your good time. So wherever you are tonight on New Year's Eve, whether you're in the bars, tearing it up, losing boyfriends and acquiring new ones, rushing out the next day to collect your drunk and stoned boyfriend from the angry bar manager who discovered him wandering around in his bar, locked inside the next day. Or you're just with your family and going to bed at 12.02, which is what we did last year. Happy fucking New Year. Enjoy it. It's a good time and it has meaning. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. This is a 24-year-old straight girl from Canada. Um, I am calling in regards to one of my really good friends. Um, a little quick backstory. He, um, I, when I first met him, I thought he was openly gay. Getting to know him, I realized that he was straight and um, dating a lot of girls. Um, recently, though, he broke up with his long-term girlfriend and just started dating a guy, um, which is totally fine. Um, however, he is not out, and I believe that he is gay. I don't believe that he's bi. Um, and 
I think that he would be happier if he was out, even someone that he can talk to about him and his boyfriend. Um, I have a friend who is friends with his boyfriend, so I know that they are together. Um, and he kind of let it slip with another one of our mutual friends that it's his boyfriend without actually... I don't think he did it intentionally, um, but he has yet to come out to me or to really come out to anyone. Um, I tried to kind of lure him out in a way that he kind of has a way to back down. You know, he he kind of mentioned his friend, who I know is his boyfriend, but I've never met him before. And I said, oh, like, what kind of friend is that? And he kind of just changed the subject. I've also invited them both out to places, um, but he, he just ignores it and doesn't come um, if they're both invited. So I was just curious, am I am I doing something unfair to him by trying to lure him out? Should I just let him come out in his own time? Um, or do you think that I should kind of make it a little bit more open that I am here to talk to if he ever wants to? I do have a lot of gay friends. In fact, I think more of my friends are gay than straight. Um, and he is well aware how open I am. In, in fact, a lot of my friends have labeled me an honorary gay. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm just curious if I'm, if I'm doing the right thing or if I need to just back off and let him come out in his own time. I know that his family is really traditional and I know that it's really, really hard for him to come out to them. Um, so I, I don't know if I, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Know a lot of gay people. He knows, you know, a lot of gay people. You are an honorary gay. Aren't you the perfect person for him to come out to? Aren't you the perfect person to be the first person that he would come out to? No. No, you're not. Not in the way that someone who's closeted and filled with anxiety about coming out thinks. You are the least perfect person. And you know why? Because you are plugged into gay land and often when someone is thinking about coming out and they know they're gay or bi and he could be bi but – no but. He could be bi. Please don't get, jump on my butt, everybody. Only Terry gets to jump on my butt. He could be bi but he's not going to come out to you as bi or gay because – However good a person you might be to come out to, he doesn't know for sure that you're not a gossip, that you're not going to turn around and tell the whole gay grapevine or even one of your other really close best gay buddies that he came out to you and isn't it wonderful and then it's going to spread like wildfire and he's not ready for that. Sometimes the people that – gay people when they're first coming out or bi people when they're first coming out but gay men when they're first coming out, sometimes they want to come out to somebody who is sequestered off from sort of – the gay party scene or the gay mainstream or the gay clack on your campus, wherever it is you live or the gay sort of 20-something uh, circle in your city that they want to come out at their own pace and they know that if that red meat gets thrown uh, into that kind of situation, that it's going to spread like wildfire. And part of his coming out process may be he wants to come out slowly and gradually and he's likelier if this is how he's thinking, to come out to somebody who has no other gay friends. He's likelier to come out to a sibling or a straight buddy who isn't plugged into gay land. So although you look at your resume in gay land and you think you're an excellent person to come out to, in his eyes, you're a dangerous person to come out to because then his coming out process may spin out of control. It may be removed from him. In his eyes, you're the least perfect person to come out to first because he wants to be in control, as so many people do when they're coming out, of the coming out process at the start. He wants to tell who he wants to tell at his own pace and when he's ready. And looking at you with all your gay friends, he knows that when the time comes to come out to you, you're going to be great. And you're going to love him and you're going to support him and you're going to be on his side. But at least now before he's come out to really anybody but this one guy who's his boyfriend, you're kind of a dangerous person to come out to. 
And you may be sitting there thinking, oh, no, I would never tell. I would never gossip. I would never, never, never. And that may be true, but he doesn't know that. He can't know that for sure. He may think that you would be unlikely to gossip, but he can't know for sure. So my advice to you is to hang back. And that's not always my advice in a situation like this. We have to balance when people are in their 20s, I think. The, on the one hand, respect for someone coming out at their own pace, respect for their process versus being asked to pretend you don't know something you damn well do know and being asked to play games. You know something about him, but it's a new thing about him. It's not as if he's been in a relationship for 10 years. It's not as if he's out to lots of other people and not out to you and you're annoyed and getting impatient and sick of having to pretend to take him seriously when he ogles girls and you know he's gay identified and is out to a whole bunch of other people as gay. In that sort of situation, you can look at somebody and go, enough already. You're gay. You have a boyfriend. I know. But in this situation, 24, first boyfriend, always been with girls before, back the fuck off. Give him six months. Give him a year. He'll come out to you in time. But I promise you, knowing the way the closeted brain works, because I used to have one, he'll come out to you last because you have gay friends and because you are gay supportive and plugged in. Hey, Dan, a uh, longtime listener and now a main subscriber. Um, Dan, I have a close friend, a straight female whose friendship I really appreciate. Uh, we have similar values and appreciate similar things and we pass the time well together. It's a very comfortable relationship. I admire her for, for many things and it's just a really nice part of my life. Um, this woman has been at my side when I was uh, breaking up with people and going through difficult things uh, in, over the past couple of years. I would have wanted to date her, but the simple problem is that I'm just not attracted to her and I probably never will be. It's just not that kind of chemistry. It's much more like brotherly, sisterly. Um, I am fond of her and, and I feel affectionately toward her, but not in any sexual way. Well, guess what? She came to visit a few days ago and after hanging out for a good part of the weekend, maybe four hours each day, not sure, uh, over herbal tea, uh, like some kind of romantic comedy, she said that she had a huge crush on me and that if I ever want to make things more than friendship, she's in. And I said I was kind of surprised and shocked and never thought about it that way, and then we left at that. And then the thought crossed my mind, what would Dan Savage say? After all, you have talked about how when getting uh, married or having a life partner, if your partner isn't the one, you can round them up to be the one. That you don't settle down without settling for. And you've talked about alternative models for relationships and marriages. Maybe this is crazy, but when I, when I fast forward 50 years to when I'm 80, I don't think it matters whether I'm really attracted to my partner because everyone gets old and saggy. Uh, that's just a fact. I'm in my early 30s and I've dated a bunch of people, and I think if I met the right person, I'd be to totally open to marriage. I'm financially independent and stable and have a good job and everything in my life is otherwise fine. So, Dan, <clears throat> this woman would be a very, very easy roundup to one if I felt like sexually interested, but I don't. And so instead of trying to round her up to one sexually, which sounds like a total disaster, can I just like take that number away or kind of take that criteria away? What I'm saying is, do you think it makes any sense to ask her for what might be called a companionate kind of relationship to basically say, let's be partners, but not be sexual. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering uh, if you think I should just move on as you tell people all the time and remain friends, or maybe is there something else to do in the situation in a way that doesn't hurt her and become a really terrible rejection? I didn't realize that herbal tea played such an important role in as a plot device in romantic comedies. I've suffered through my fair share of romantic comedies and I just don't recall any herbal tea scenes, but perhaps I haven't been keeping up. Um, 
I am a backer of the companionate marriage model. Uh, it is a, a kind of marriage that's often not acknowledged and I think it can be a kind of marriage that's very freeing, that there are some people who aren't very sexual and there are some marriages where there's a terrific partnership. Maybe they, they were very sexually attracted to each other early on um, or there was a good sexual connection if not a roaring one and the sex is kind of you – know, the desire, the passion has dissipated but there's a real friendship and there's a real – partnership and there's you know somebody who respects the other as a parent and a whatever else they bring to the table um, and they really love each other and they're good together and it's a good solid marriage without sex and a lot of the culture looks at those people and say well you know if you're not fucking like bunnies all day long every day then your marriage is a lie and you must divorce and then people who are in those fine and serviceable and loving marriages that actually satisfy them psych themselves up to believe that they must divorce that their marriage is a lie as if a marriage is just a penis shoving in and out of a vagina at a regular clip or at regular intervals and it ain't. It ain't. It just ain't. That said, what she confided in you when she opened up to you wasn't that she was interested in a companionate marriage, that she didn't say to you, we're such good friends, we'd be such good life partners. I, there's no sexual spark between us but not every marriage has that. Not every relationship has that and we would be really terrific together. What do you say? She said, I want to fuck you basically when she said that she has feelings for you. That's girl for I want to fuck you. Often girls aren't allowed to say, aren't given the permission by the culture and then by themselves to just be really upfront like a dude would be, like a fag would be. Look, I want to fuck you. How about it? And that's really what she said. And so for you to turn around and say, you know, I really like you but I don't want to fuck you at all. And if you're willing to settle for a husband who doesn't want to fuck you at all but really enjoys your company, how about me? How about now? I think that will really hurt her. And I think it's too soon. You're in your early 30s. I think it's too soon to make that kind of compromise. I think it's too soon for you to settle. And there is no settling down without settling for. There is no the one. You have to find the .64 and round that motherfucker up. But it would be unfair and cruel of you to look at her and say, I'm willing to settle for you in a passionless marriage without any sexual connection if you're willing to live with that rejection all your life, if you're willing to know that you offered yourself to me physically, intimately, sexually and I passed on that, that's going to be really shredding. So my advice to you is to wait. Stay friends. Tell her that you don't reciprocate those feelings for her, that you love her, that you feel really close to her, that you appreciate everything that she is. And everything that she's does that you appreciate everything that she is, everything that she's done for you uh, over your life and and you want to keep doing what you can for her over the course of her life. And then in 10, 15, 20 years, if you guys are still partnerless and you want to collapse into each other's arms and have that companionate marriage once you've both exhausted your other options, I think that would be kind of a beautiful late in life settling for. But you're too young to settle, I think. And she's she didn't offer to settle for you sexually. She wants you sexually. You don't want her in the same way. That's not a match. So have an honest convo with her about that. Tell her you love her. Tell her not in that way. Tell her you'll always be there for her, but not in that way. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 24-year-old uh, heterosexual female in L.A. I've never had a relationship, but I've had a hookup buddy who I've been seeing for the past two years. And it's always been a really casual relationship up until recently because we both live in different cities. Um, but ever since I moved out here, um, we've been seeing each other a lot more regularly. And um, recently, he's been 
interested in spending more time together. Like he's been asking me to get drinks and to get dinner and stuff. And um, our schedules never quite matched up, but uh, we finally got a chance to talk a little bit. We we, uh, we got a meal together and um, we got to know each other. And now I can admit that I kind of, I feel like I have feelings for him or that I like him, which is a little uh, troubling. But because of that, now our relationship has changed. The dynamic has changed. Like if he you know, uh, canceled our plans or if he, you know, something comes up and he can't make it, I, instead of just brushing it off like I used to, I actually feel disappointed and, you know, upset. And, um, I, I can admit that I, I would be interested. I am interested in pursuing a relationship with him, but I just wonder if it's because I'm over having casual relationships or casual hookups and I want to be more serious or if it's because we genuinely have something that's worth exploring. And, um, I guess I just, I don't know how, how I can tell. I don't know what the difference is. And it's a little confusing. One of the things that always baffles me about friends with benefits scenarios is this attitude, uh, often by both parties that it's all about the benefits, not about the friendship. And there's no relationship there. There's no intimacy there. And that some terms of some invisible contract that folks have signed when they enter into a friends with benefits relationship have been violated when one person has feelings for the other. I've had casual partners. I I dated people casually. I had feelings for them. I liked them. I was attracted to them. I enjoyed spending time with them. I cared about them even though I wasn't interested in any sort of real committed relationship. And one of the things that means when you say I'm not interested in a committed relationship is that you don't or you're not ready for or unwilling to shoulder kind of the the unstated pressure of the obligations that come with that relationship, which often amounts to you can't change plans, you can't, you know, at the last minute cancel because the other person's feelings are going to be hurt because they're going to read into that some sort of rejection or attitude on your part that you're not serious about them, that, that their feelings don't matter to you. And that's often what people are trying to avoid when they have friends with benefits relationships is, are those feelings of obligation and then feelings of guilt if they have to remake their plans or they can't be where they said they were going to be when they said they were going to be there or if something else comes up that you would rather pursue, for instance. But there are a lot of people in loving, committed, romantic, long-term relationships that began as friends with benefits that at some point, one or the other of both, asked for an upgrade. Entering into a friends with benefits relationship does not preclude eternally something else emerging or evolving from that relationship. You clearly have shifted. You are developing feelings for this guy. You like him in a boyfriendly way and you would like a boyfriendly relationship with him that comes with those sorts of obligations like not to casually and thoughtlessly change your plans that when you make plans with a boyfriend or a girlfriend they're kind of solid barring some uncontrollable circumstance that must pull you away a work obligation or an emergency it's one of the things we have boyfriends and girlfriends for our husbands and wives for that there's one person who puts you first there's one person out there to whom you are the priority, right? That you're a couple, that you're a pair. You want that with him. You haven't asked for that from him. He isn't giving that to you 
and now you're having these feelings of disappointment and hurt when he doesn't do what? When he doesn't – when he doesn't what? When he fails to be the boyfriend that he doesn't know that you want him to be or he doesn't realize that you feel him to be at this point because you are reading into his seemingly sudden desire to hang out, to have drinks, to go to dinner, to have really a social and perhaps datey dimension to your relationship – Intentions on his part that haven't been clarified. So for fuck's sake, clarify, clarify, clarify. Tell him you have feelings for him. Tell him that this is different now for you. The the sex, the hanging out, the, the going out, all of it feels different to you because you have feelings for him. And see what he says. If he says, whoa, I don't have feelings for you and you have violated the terms of the contract that we both signed when we entered into this friends with benefits relationship, stop seeing him. Then it's over. And that's your leverage, right? Your presence in his pants, his, your leverage. So that if what you want is something more and he's not quite there yet but perhaps was thinking of getting there, maybe he'll speed the fuck up. Maybe a month or two without seeing you will convince him that you are too important in his life. It will help him identify the feelings that he actually has for you and put a name on them, a name like girlfriend. But you have to be willing to call the question. You have to be willing to speak the fuck up. Right now, you're not speaking the fuck up and you're getting hurt, right? You fear speaking the fuck up because you might get hurt because what if the answer is no? What if you say, I want to be your girlfriend. I think you're my boyfriend. The answer is no. Then you'll get hurt. But you're, you're getting hurt right now. And what you're not thinking about, it's the sort of shitty thought processes that so many people go through in relationships because they fear rejection and are incapable of anticipating acceptance somehow. He might say no. When you say, I want something more serious and more committed. But he might say yes. So your choice is the surety of the hurt when he doesn't show up or he cancels plans or he treats you like an FWB or the possibility of hurt if he says no and the possibility of, hey, I have a boyfriend now for reals. This FWB has been upgraded to relationship for reals status. Take the risk. Jump in. And if he walks away, he walks away. doesn't mean he can't walk back into your life. doesn't mean he can't realize that you were the best thing that ever happened to him, rom-com style, maybe while he's sitting somewhere sipping some herbal tea. Good luck. Hey, Dan Savage and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 24-year-old heterosexual female living in the Midwest. But the question actually isn't about me. The question is about my 21, almost 21-year-old, homosexual brother living in the Midwest. I love my brother so much. He's one of my best friends. We're really, really close. And I was one of the first people that he came out to um, a few years ago. And we talk all the time. Um, he's come out to some more people in our family um, and his friends. But um, we talk a lot. And we talk about relationships. Um, but I feel like he's getting or has been for a while, very explicit about what he talks about with me. I mean, he's not just telling me, oh, he went on a date and hooked up with a guy. He's giving me the dirty details about fucking and fucking and all that. He even has called one time to ask me about a bump, about when, he, when it burns and he pees. And to be fair, I'm a nurse, but you know what? He's in college and there's university clinics that have a lot of nurses that aren't his sister. The problem I'm having is that I don't know how to tell him that I don't want to hear all the dirty details. 
It's not that he's having gay sex. It's that it's my brother having sex, period. And I don't want to know all about that. The problem is I feel like I'm a really big confidant of his. I love him. I support him. I don't really care who he's having sex with as long as it's being safe. And I feel like I've been a really good source of information for him. Being a teenager, he didn't hook up with girls and didn't hook up with boys. And now that he's in his early 20s, he's starting to experiment with that and is, is really inexperienced. And I look out for him. But I don't know how to tell him that it's too much without making him feel ashamed. I don't want him to stop telling me about things. I just don't want to know every single detail. But I'm afraid that he's going to back off and he's not going to tell me things or he's going to think that I'm grossed out or something like that. And I don't want to, I don't want that to happen because I love my brother. I love him a lot. And I don't want to hurt his feelings. And I just want to know if you have any advice for me on how to talk to him about backing off on the details and grossing out his sister. There's two ways you could go about fixing this little problem. The next time you see your brother and by some miracle, he's not running his mouth about the cum that was running out of his mouth 10 minutes before he showed up at your house. You start running your mouth about the big dick you just sucked and the boyfriend that you've got who's fucking you in the ass and you've never done anal before and that's so interesting. But then, you know, taking a shit after you've done anal once or twice, as you know, bro, oh my God, uh, what a new experience that is. And his dick is so big, I can barely get it into my throat. And he's into ass to mouth, but I really don't know if I want to do that because, ew. And then look at his face while you just run your mouth about your crazy fucked up sex life and all the crazy, crazy sex things you're doing, he's going to be looking at you like, oh my God, shut up. You're my sister. And then you just pause and say, exactly. You don't want to hear about the dick in me. I don't want to hear about the dick in you. I am on your side. I am pro dick in you, bro. I want you to have sex and to have a really kick-ass romantic life. But there are things you don't tell your sister because she's your sister. You know, the details, the gory details, those are for your friends, not your family. I see this sometimes um, and, and this is I think the more interesting point I want to make because um, your problems easily stop. Just ask him to shut the fuck up and then if he thinks that that's somehow homophobic, just say, if you were fucking girls, I wouldn't want to hear this from you, period, the end. And if he was fucking girls like this, he probably wouldn't be saying this shit to you. That this is part of his coming out process. This is part of his burning off the sex shame that he feels. Sometimes kids when they're coming out will overcompensate for that sex shame. I was told that I could never do this. I was told I should be ashamed of this. I was told that if I sucked a dick, Jesus would cry and now I'm sucking dick and I don't care who knows and I can talk about it because I'm gay and proud and gay, gay, gay and gay sex is a huge part about being gay and if I can't talk about the gay sex, then I'm – Burdened with eternalized homophobia and he's just at that stage where he has to realize that the same sort of social strictures because we want you know equality under the laws and the customs of our culture and the same kind of social strictures that apply to straight people should perhaps apply to us. And one of those social strictures is there's shit you don't tell your mom about what your boyfriend does to you. Your mom gets it. Your boyfriend and you have sex. That's all she needs to know and she knows it. You don't have to tell her that your boyfriend's a top and you're the bottom and you're into whatever else that you two are into. TMI, mom doesn't need to know. You run mom around your sex life on a need-to-know basis and mom doesn't really need to know exactly who's fucking whose ass. Same goes for your sister. Makes you uncomfortable? Tell him. If he makes a little sad, my sister's homophobic face, tell him that that's not what it's about. That if you're straight, you wouldn't want to hear it either. 
just like he wouldn't want to hear it from you. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female, and I have a question about um, sex work and relationships. Right now, I work full-time as a uh, social worker, and I work with really little kids and their families, and I'm broke. It's a good job. I don't get paid much, and I have student loans to pay back, and I'm considering dancing to make some extra money, but I'm wondering uh, what kind of detrimental effects that might have on both my career, if somebody found out that I was doing that, and on any future relationships. Um, I'd hope that if I met a guy that I wanted to be with, he would be okay with me dancing, but I know full well that I could possibly meet somebody wonderful, and then they find out that I've been dancing and wouldn't want to be with me. So I'm just wondering what you think. If it's worth doing it now for the extra money so I can live, or um, if I should steer clear of making money that way because of my career and possible future relationships. People who work with their children routinely lose their jobs when they get caught out having done sex work or they get caught doing sex work. And this kind of dancing for a lot of people will be perceived as sex work, even if it involves no sex, even if it's a place where you're not doing even lap dances. People will think it's sex work and the paranoia and hypocrisy is so rife that people will think that if you will dance on the laps of middle-aged men in a club for money, that you will dance on the laps of small children that you encounter at work for some reason. If you had a husband that you loved fucking, they wouldn't leap from, well, she likes fucking dudes. She likes fucking that guy. She'll probably fuck any of the little boys that she has to work with. They don't make that kind of crazy-ass leap. But so judgmental and so – hateful are we about sex workers that we think that sex workers have no self-control, no boundaries, no limits, no ethics, no sense, no ability to make a distinction between appropriate place to dance with your clothes off and an inappropriate place to dance with your clothes off. Appropriate at a sex club, appropriate at a place where other people are doing it and people who are coming there want to see it. Inappropriate at work, inappropriate in the house of the child that you are helping. As a part of your day job. So I don't think you should do it. I think you should find some other way to make money. Not because I don't think you ought to be able to do it. I think you ought to be able to do it. I think that people should be able to, as adults in adult venues, engage in adult activities and adult interests and pursuits, some of them for money, and do low-grade or even high-grade sex work without being retaliated against, without their careers their regular jobs, their day jobs, suffering. But I don't run the world, unfortunately. And the kinds of people who run the world in which you exist are the kinds of people who will fire your ass. If some asshole who's at your club makes a Vine video or takes some photographs and they wind up online or, God forbid, somebody in your office comes in and sees you there and spreads gossip, or the parent of a child that you've worked with, perhaps an intervention that you helped stage and piss that parent off, that parent finds out that you've been working in a titty house and retaliates against you by outing you. And yeah, if you're concerned about ever being judged by a potential partner, moving on to boyfriends, if you worry about losing the affections of someone for that reason, you will lose the effect. You know, there are guys who will not date you. For that reason. So you are setting yourself up for that kind of rejection. I would, if I were a woman, want to be rejected by those guys. I wouldn't want to be with those guys. 
So I would regard that kind of rejection as kind of doing me a favor, eliminating the assholes from my dating pool, filtering them out. But if you don't want to lose potentially some guy over this, don't do this because you will potentially lose guys over this. I wish it weren't the case. I really do. But unfortunately, like I said, I don't run the world. Hey, Dan. I am a 29-year-old male who just broke up with a 30-year-old woman. Um, We had a fun but tumultuous relationship, uh, lots of breakups. Anyway, uh, not so much what I'm calling about our breakup. Our recent breakup is fine. I'm fine, I guess, with the closure on it. But um, what ended up happening was we ended up going out to get drinks, and we ended up having a guy come out and meet us who I'm not too thrilled about. I introduced her to him because I had to, and it ended up being kind of a bad mistake. He ended up blatantly hitting on her like I knew he would, and blatantly just kind of being disrespectful to our relationship. So I ended up getting in a fight with this guy in the bar, which I've never done before. We ended up brawling. We got up, pulled up off the floor. It was stupid, but when I stood up, my girlfriend, uh, instead of you know, I guess not taking a side or taking any side, but his ended up slapping me in the face. <laughs> and so I was kind of disappointed. I felt betrayed. And we ended up breaking up. And this led me to be kind of sorry about the breakup and sorry about what I did. And we tried. I tried to kind of catch things up with her, and she forgave me. Then that night after the fight and everything, she ended up going out with this guy, doing some drugs with him, going to the strip clubs, lap dances, the whole work. So I was also really betrayed and hurt by that. But anyway, we ended up getting into a fight because I just wasn't really comfortable with him seeing her anymore. And she ended up not having any desire to stop seeing him. So we ended up calling it quits. And I'm curious if I was in the wrong for kind of asking her to not see him anymore to meet me in the middle there there are people of course that I wouldn't that I haven't seen since we've been dating again because I know it makes her feel uncomfortable and these aren't even people that I have gotten in fights with anybody I don't want to be controlling but it seems like she could pick a better person I don't know I'm just curious if I was in the wrong for you know asking her to make that decision You broke up with her. It's over. She's your ex-girlfriend. You don't get to dictate to her who she can and cannot see. Um, You can say to her as a friend, it makes it difficult for me to be in a relationship with you as a friend since our romantic thing is over if you're seeing that guy. And you can lay it out there that the price of admission to be your friend, not your boyfriend, is to not see that guy. And if she's going to turn around and say, well, I'm going to see that guy – then there's no friendship. Then she's indicated that the price that you're asking is too high, too high a price for her to pay, a price she is unwilling to pay. And then the ball's back in your court. Are you then going to be her friend anyway? The answer is no. Then it's over. And you can nurse your sense of betrayal and your hurt feelings. You were there for her. She was new to town. You showed her around, introduced her to people. You helped her get socially established in whatever town it is where you guys all live and she repays you by flirting with or getting with some guy that you got into fistfight with who you think is an asshole. 
okay, well then she's a shitty person and she's out of your life and good fucking riddance and don't hang out with her anymore. Period. The end. Really not that hard to understand. You don't have the right. No one has the right to say to their exes who they can and cannot date, who they may and may not hang out with. And if you make those kinds of demands, if you dictate terms like that, you are constantly going to be hurt and disappointed and aggrieved because rarely will an ex allow an ex to determine who they can and can't fuck or date or hang out with or run around with or anything. So it ended violently and messily and badly and you have hurt feelings and you don't like the guy she's with now and stop seeing her. Don't hang out with her. Stop calling her. Stop telling her what to do. You know why? Because A, you shouldn't tell her what to do and B, you can't tell her what to do. So it is a waste of your time to tell her what to do and it's a waste of her time to listen to you telling her what to do. It's over. She's out of your life. Get the fuck out of hers. And maybe you know your desire to, to tell her that she cannot hang out with this guy is selfless and altruistic and it's because you know this guy is a piece of shit and you've known him longer and you know his reputation and she doesn't know all this and you're just trying a friendly post-relationship way to protect her from hurt, to save her from wasting her time on this guy that you know to be a douchebag and an asshole. She'll learn. If he actually is bad news, she will figure that out for herself and then you will have the distinct pleasure of being able to say I told you so when she calls you to say I should have listened to you when you said to stay the fuck away from that guy. But you can't make her listen. Hey, Dan. This is a pretty simple question. I have started having sex with this guy and it's awesome and we're using condoms. But I've been having sex with women for the last decade or more, so I'm not really used to this. So I'm wondering what is proper etiquette, you know, after... You're done having sex. The man's laying there with a the condom on. Is he just going to get up and walk into the bathroom and take throw it away? Or because after you come, it's kind of nice to lay around in bed and not have to get up. Should one have like tissue and a garbage can by the bed? Or should I, would it, what would be like a really awesome thing for me to do? You know, somebody would say, wow, that was pretty cool that she took care of things that way. So anyway, that's that. Thanks. Bye. Wow, this is a tough one because if you were going to do like the gays, you would have, as we call them, cum rags by the bed and that's not just like some crusty old soccer uh, t-shirt. That's like those rally towels they hand out at football games and stuff, a little larger than washcloths, like a little collection of those that are cleaned and folded and just by the side of the bed to mop up the cum. And when a gay dude sees that, he thinks, yeah, cum rag, awesome, cum rags by the bed, as it should be. But when a straight dude sees that, he's likely to think this is a jack shack. I'm not the only one being mopped up after around here. So yeah, I don't think a, a, a woman could wind up being unfairly judged and slut shamed by a dude who might not understand why there's this little stack of towels on your nightstand or handier close by. It's kind of common in Gayland, a common courtesy to have cum rags handy and at hand for mopping up after so you don't have to jump out of bed. I guess though, as a woman, maybe you could have tissues but the problem with wiping up with tissues after is they disintegrate and stick to penises and stomachs and they fall apart and it's gross and you get it all over your hands and then you get little bits of semi-dissolved Kleenex everywhere and it's just – 
It doesn't work. It, it cannot do the job. And brownie paper towels scratch and they don't feel good on the head of your dick. You really want nice, squishy cum rags that then you just toss off onto the side of the floor. You throw on the laundry with your other towels and washcloths and shit. And then you put by the bed. And it would be you know, awesome of you to, to clean them up. I just worry that if you clean them up gay style, that you'll be perceived since you are a woman to be cleaning them up pro style. Because literally the only place you see that little stack of handy cum rags cleaned and laundered and folded and ready to use outside of gay men's bedrooms are massage parlors and jack shacks. So pick your poison. Disintegrating tissues, which you'll understand and think is just fine, or cum rags that could get you unfairly judged. Before we move on to the next call, a suggestion from one of the tech savvy at risk youth, one of the more perverse ones. Maybe you could use your own underpants because that would be erotic, he says. But but I have to disagree. First, because I don't think there's anything erotic about women's underwear. And second, I, I just – I object to being asked to offer you this additional advice because now I know something about one of the tech savvy at risk youth. But what they think is erotic that I really never wanted to know. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a 27-year-old female, straight. Think. I'm pretty much open to a lot of things, but my question is, in the past two years, I've been with my guy for five years now. The past two years, I've really been getting into the whole BDSM scene, like um, specifically tying up, um, spanking, some kind of anal play stuff. My main question is... At, you know, between the ages of 15 and 16, I was sexually abused. I'm wondering if this has anything to do with it and if participating in these kind of things are, you know, damaging to me or is it, you know, healthy as long as we, you know, remain within boundaries. So I would love to hear your feedback. Sometimes when people have perhaps disturbing or challenging kinks that from the outside can look like abuse but if they're being practiced safely, sanely and consensually are not abusive at all, uh, they'll look at that and they'll then look back through their life and think, what could cause me to have these kinks that involve you know, power dynamics and power imbalances and to find those sorts of abusive-ish role play scenarios so arousing and sometimes people who, as you were, were abused at some point, you say you were sexually abused between 15 and 16, will go, well, that must be it. That was abuse and here I am enjoying you know, a kind of role play abuse and so there, there has to be a link. But if you are in the BDSM scene, as you say that you are, hopefully you have some friends now that you can openly discuss your kinks and your sexual history with. And what you'll find is that there are just as many people, if not more people, who are into kink, into BDSM, into those same sort of power imbalance scenarios, erotic scenarios that you are, who were never abused. You know, the, the famous example that I've used before on the show is you meet somebody who's into spanking who says, oh, well, this is my kink and this turns me on because I was spanked as a child and I had these sort of intense erotic associations with it. And then you turn around to the next spanker at the spanking club and they say, oh, I'm totally into spanking because I wasn't spanked as a child. And I used to hear about spanking and it sounded so crazy and, and interesting and, and weird and hot that I started to fantasize about it. And so it proves nothing. But if you're concerned about it, here's a little 
balm for your Gilead. There's a study published last year in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Um, it's easy to find. Uh, just Google BDSM Health Dutch and it pops right up because there's a study of hundreds of Dutch people who are active participants in BDSM and they measured them on what's called the big five personality characteristics. And what the researchers found paradoxically and unexpectedly to many people who judge and shame people who are into BDSM, and yes, I am thinking of you, William Sailton at Slate, what they found was that people into BDSM who practice BDSM report, and I'm quoting from a review of the study, a better sense of well-being, and they, these kinksters, are more open to new experiences, they're more extroverted, they're more conscientious, less sensitive to rejection than people who do not practice BDSM. Now, it's not as if you take somebody, take two average people, who you know are at the same place on all of these measurements on the big five personality characteristics and you whip a little BDSM onto one of them and then they become a better, happier, healthier person. It's not like BDSM is the magic ingredient, the little sprinkles that you drop on somebody's head and then they're a better, healthier person. Just the people who are into BDSM, who are practicing it, are probably going to be more thoughtful uh, and conscientious about – you know, have processed and worked through their desires – and are actualizing them in a healthy and responsible way. And that can feel like an achievement. And, you know, to go for and do the things that you want to do, probably going to make you feel better and happier in those big five personality characteristic measurements, right? Be interesting to take a study of people who are into BDSM, who are turned on by BDSM, who aren't actually practicing, who aren't in the scene, in the community, who haven't been able to allow themselves to act on their desires and Subject them to these same measurements and see if they're happier than the average Joe. And I bet you would find that they're less happy than the average Joe. That it's not the BDSM. It's the embracing self. It is the not thwarting of your own desires. It's not running from your own desires. It's being happily the person that you are and doing the things that you want to do with other people who want to do them with you and finding that community and that camaraderie. And that release and that joy and that pleasure and that makes people do better on these measurements of personal happiness, right? So you, you there caller who have this – you there caller who has this these negative experiences from your childhood where you were sexually abused and now in adulthood you are enjoying these sexual activities uh, with other adults that are consensual and that give you great joy – those things could not be related, probably are not related and there are as many people around into BDSM who were not abused. Take comfort in their existence. Don't feel guilty about your desires. You aren't just abusing yourself now in place of the abuser who abused you then. You are doing the things that you enjoy with people who enjoy them and doing these things, this study, an important and really good and solid study a large control group and a large subject group shows that engaging in these practices does not prove that there's anything wrong with you. Indeed, quite the opposite. There's quite a lot right with you. Hi, Dan. 34-year-old woman calling from your hometown. So I basically just ended um, a 10-year marriage. And as I'm starting to date, I'm noticing that a lot of the guys I meet say the reason that their marriage ended was because their wives over the course of their marriage lost their libidos, um, which makes me feel kind of shitty because that was me and my relationship. But the thing is, as soon as I started dating again, my libido immediately came back. It skyrocketed. I thought I had absolutely no libido, and clearly I 
well, I suddenly have a really high one. So I feel like there's not enough discussion on like why this happens, because it seems to be happening in a lot of relationships and to a lot of people. And, you know, I know you have a lot of sort of experts on tap um, to talk about why a woman in a long-term relationship would have her libido go into the crapper, essentially. So, yeah, I don't know. I would kind of love to hear this talked about more. And there are a lot of self-help books on this stuff, but, you know, they're, they're really kind of junk, most of them anyway. Joining us by phone, one of those experts, Dr. Lori Brodo, psychologist and sex researcher at the University of British Columbia up there in Vancouver. Hello, Dr. Brodo. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us. Uh, so people, women in long-term relationships, we hear about uh, the crisis in the female libido and women uh, with flatlining libidos and sexless marriages. Uh, what's the problem here? Why would a woman in an LTR see her libido go into the crapper? Well, you know, first of all, what she's describing is, is, is pretty common. And the fact that desire, the desire that seems to be really high at the start of a relationship where everything is new, people are more experimental, there's more mystery, uh, there's more risk-taking, etc. And that just, that declines over time. And it's, it's very common uh, as relationships continue on over time. And it's not necessarily the case that someone is, has lost their libido or has a desire disorder or dysfunction. In most cases, it's pretty, pretty, pretty normal, pretty common. They're just bored. But yeah, in a lot of cases, it's boredom. People get lazy. Um, things become stale. Couples become too entrenched in one another's lives. And people just they get lazy and bored. And so people are not putting in effort. Well, you know, but you hear so many couples who have this problem, the sexless marriage and the wife or sometimes the husband with no libido. And they're trying. They're going to see a therapist. They're reading self-help books that are full of bullshit, as the caller states, and I agree with her. And, and sort of dancing around the real issue, which is that they're just fucking bored. And there's no amount of him doing the dishes that's going to make her want to fuck him, that they need to shake things up in a much more sort of perhaps threatening way. They need to make each other strangers somehow to each other again to get that excitement back. Or they need to get it somewhere else to get that feeling of strangeness and excitement back, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. When you look at uh, those couples who actually do well, you know, they come out of either seeing a therapist or doing some work on their own and regaining some of that excitement, it's, they're, they're doing exactly what, they're, what you're suggesting that they do. They create some distance. They try things they haven't tried before. They become more experimental um, and not buy into the idea that, you know, we need to get closer to one another. We need to be more intimate. That's not going to help them regain their libido. Because at the beginning of a relationship, when you're really excited to fuck somebody, you don't know them at all. That's exactly true. And that's exactly where desire lives. It's in the unknown. It's in the mystery. So it seems like desire uh, and, and we've made, you know, we've said that sexual passion, heat, desire is a defining characteristic of a successful marriage. But that's on a collision course with what a successful marriage is, a long-term relationship. You're going to get closer and closer and closer. You're going to merge. You're going to become more familiar. And then you have all these people standing around going, well, I love him. We, we love each other so much, but I don't want to fuck him or her. Right. And, and, and how, do, right. how do we square that circle? 
Well, I think I think we first of all just accept that you know what this happens in a long term relationship. As we get closer, as time goes on, as we share everything with what with each other, we're going to lose something in that. We're, we're going to lose desire. We're going to lose the spontaneity and the and that kind of sexual passion that we had at the beginning. And so once people recognize that, okay, if my desire is gone, doesn't mean we're not meant to be or we don't have chemistry, but we need to shake this up. We mm-hmm. need to do something to create some distance with each other. So I think we need to have that conversation first and accept that, you know what, this happens. Right. And that if you, are, you know, if your libido is tanked in the context of a long-term relationship, it doesn't necessarily mean you're sexually broken. And the fix is, can be scary. The fix is either end that relationship if you want sexual passion as a part of your relationship, but then that sexual passion is going to drain eventually out of your next relationship, just as it drained out of your previous relationship, make each other strangers to one another. Again, I talk about creating artificial hurdles because at the beginning of a relationship, you have to like push through barriers. You have to, it's scary. It's risky. Right. You have to get to know each other. You have to figure out if you want to fuck each other, you have to find a place and a time and it can feel right. dangerous. And you can reestablish that danger even in the context of a long-term relationship by just artificially imposing some obstacles that you have to overcome and the example I always give is say you're going to have sex three times this week, but not in the house, not in the bed, not in any of the positions you've been having it in. And it's up to you this week and me next week to figure out when and where and how and surprise you. And then, That's you know, exactly right. your yeah. partner's going to jump out from behind a bush or show up in your office and you know exactly what's going to happen. And actually, it's kind of exciting to be surprised even by someone you've been with for a long time. Or, and I hate to say this because I get grief for being the like Pied Piper of open relationships or open the relationship, keep the intimacy with your partner in the long-term relationship and get some of that excitement elsewhere. And one of the things that you often hear from people who've opened their relationship up is that it reinvigorates their desire for their long-term partner. That's right. Yeah. And there, and there's, you know, as, as you know, there's a lot of really good evidence looking at individuals who are either polyamorous or have open relationships. Um, and the impact that that has on their, on their primary relationship. And in some cases, it can actually be an opportunity to fuel desire. Mm-hmm. But what do we do with this whole industry that sort of looks at straight couples, can't confront what's actually going on and tells them, well, obviously the problem here is he's not helping enough with the housework or, She's not doing this. That we've come up – the culture like throws at straight couples who are doing nothing wrong, who are succumbing to something that's hardwired into long-term relationships. But then being told that, oh, they're doing love wrong. They're doing relationships wrong. They're somehow failing when it's just this inevitability that there will be this waning and in some case cratering of desire unless you control for it in a way that just acknowledges that this is a thing that happens. doesn't mean I love you less but this is a thing that happens if we don't – if we're not careful. Yeah, and you know, when you actually look at surveys that look at how common low desire is, and there was quite a large one that just came out last week based on 15,000 Brits over the last several years, um, it's becoming more common. So over time, desire is is tanking more and more. And I think it has a lot to do with some of exactly what you're talking about, what society tells us about what desire should look like in a long-term relationship. And if you love your partner, desire will stay high. And, uh, you know, how to get desire and how not to get desire. And it's, and it's not, frankly, not working. So we, we need to do something a little bit different because in the meantime, there's, there is no medication. There's been another medication this week that went to the FDA for approval. It was not approved. There's no, there's no quick fix to this problem. Um, but people do need to step outside of the box and say, okay, well, what worked in the beginning of my relationship? And why is that not happening now? And how can I, 
sort of reinstate some of that into my long-term relationship to give it a try. I love the phrase that people – or the expression that some people use to describe cheating, that somebody went out and got some strange. And you, I think in a long-term relationship, you have to be that strange or you have to like work to make each other strange to one another again. And there's actually two other things I wanted to throw out there that I think are really interesting and people don't talk about in the context of the low libido or sexless marriage, which is uh, there was that study that showed that – Many successful long-term relationships, one common feature was that the, the people in them spent a lot of time apart. They went on separate vacations. They had different sort of friends that they saw separately and away from each other. And they would come back together and have new things to talk about, new experiences. They would have – they still had an individual separate private life of their own, separate from the relationship outside the marriage. But also there's all these other studies that shown that because of the internet, because of the way people date now and the way people increasingly marry now, people marry people – more and more who are very, very similar to them in faith, background, class, education levels, geographically close. And that is just seems to me a recipe for disaster. You want to be with somebody who's different from you, who's exciting, who defaults to exciting difference from you. So they're always kind of a mystery. But if you marry somebody who's just like you and you spend all your time together, you're not going to want to fuck that person very often. They're not going to be this mystery. There's not going to be this strange continent you want to conquer. They're just going to be this brother or sister, this sibling. Yeah, and, you know, sex therapists hear that all the time. We're like roommates, and we get along so well on every other front except in this in this one domain. And so, you know, couples need to find a way. How do we, how do we be that other person? How do we be different from one another sexually? So that if we are similar in all these other ways and we spend so much time together, how do we step outside of that? You know, how do we mm-hmm. role play? How do we create space? That's where Eros, you know, desire, libido, that's where it lives. It lives in the spaces in between. Uh, and getting closer, becoming more intimate, spending more time with your partner is not the recipe for fueling libido. How often do people go see a couples counselor who says you two need to spend less time to each- with each other, you need to be less intimate, you need to get the fuck away from each other, you're going to go to Hawaii on vacation <laughs> this year, and you're going to go to Europe, get the fuck away from each other. You don't hear that from, from therapists and, and marriage counselors. They're always sh- trying to glue the already glued together, re-glue them, glue them more right. tightly together, tie them more tightly together. Yeah, and you know it's it's a big problem, and it's a, and it is a problem of uh, you know some practitioners not actually reading the science and what the science and evolution tells us about desire and what fuels us. So it, it is it is a real problem. And the conventional wisdom. And also, that's but but that's a message that people I think that society want to hear, and it's it's such a paradoxical message. You know, get away from your partner in order to feel more horny about that person. But that's but that you know it's of course I'm simplifying a little bit, but. The bottom line is, is that that is going to take you quite a bit farther than, than getting closer. It's the secret of the success of my relationship. Terry's going to a concert tonight with a bunch of his going to concert DJ music snob dancing friends and I would not in a hundred million years want to go see that concert. But you there know, you I, I'm often told by people that there's something wrong with that. Like, oh, Terry goes out separately and alone from you? I hear from some friends that, oh, they would never let their partner go here, go there, do this, do that without them. And I think those people are fucking crazy. We're very different, and that's good. That's yeah, that, that's good, and it's healthy, so and it works. Can I ask you a personal question? Oh sure. Are you partnered? I am partnered. Yes. And did you marry, or are you with somebody who's very similar to you, or did you look at all the research and go find somebody from Mars? 
<laughs> well, um, and I don't mean men know, are from I, Mars, women are from Venus. I just mean somebody really no, please, different. No, 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 not not that. Um, you know what? We're we're actually we're extremely different, and you know, at, at some sometimes it's frustrating, but sexually, I would say that it creates for a great compatibility because we're so different from each other. <laughs> Every once in a while, Terry and I'll, go say, and I'll say no more on You'll that. Say no, I'll say one more thing. Every once in a while, Terry and I go out. We see somebody who, when we met and first started dating, said, "It's never going to work. You're too different." And we see that person out. Oh, once really? We walk up to him yeah. and go, "We're still really worried. We're going to break up any minute now." Yeah, you yeah. Could, watch out. Watch could, out for that. You yeah. could still be right. Dr. Laura Brodo, psychologist and sex researcher at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, who is with somebody who is very different from her, as I am. And before we let go, really quickly, this woman just got out of a 10-year marriage that sounds like it ended because of the sexlessness and the no libido. She's dating other people. She has a high libido now. Advice for her as she potentially goes into a new committed long-term relationship, which she will eventually. What's the advice for her from you? Uh, create some space. Think back to what you did at the start of your relationship when libido was higher. And why are you not doing it now? Be risky. Take chances. And, uh, yeah, create some space. Have adventures together. Have adventures, yes. And have adventures apart. That's how you keep it's it up. Even more important, yes. Dr. Lori Brodo, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. She wanted an expert. I think we got the best. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old girl calling from Portland. I live in a studio apartment, and since all the apartments in my building are small and close together, I can often hear other people, which is usually fine. However, last night I was woken up at 3 a.m. by a loud scuffle in the apartment below mine, and the girl who lives there screaming things like, no, don't, and get off me. Of course, my first thought was that she was being raped, and I should call the police. But as I became more awake and listened more, I became pretty sure I was hearing a consensual rape place in Rio. I think so, because I've heard this girl and her boyfriend have sex before, and I've heard them fight before both of which they do loudly and passionately. The male voice was definitely her boyfriend, and the girl sounded more like she does when she's turned on than when she's angry. Either way, it was a disturbing thing to listen to when I'd rather be asleep, and I wondered if I should just err on the side of caution and call the cops anyway. Before I decided, I heard someone else pounding on their door. The girl screamed, fuck off and go away, adding to my perception that what I was hearing was consensual. The person kept knocking, and finally the couple answered. I heard muscles talking, and I didn't stop. I'm section kink positive, but I'm upset by this incident, partly because I work a 9-to-5 job, and I hate losing sleep all weeknights, but mostly because I think these people are inconsiderate assholes for allowing everyone in the building to hear what sounds like a violent crime taking place. As a woman living alone who sometimes brings OkCupid dates home, I take comfort knowing that if I were assaulted in my apartment, all my neighbors would hear me scream. So I don't really appreciate having another woman cry wolf. So I have two questions for you. First, you once quoted a musical or something that said, you can be as loud as you want when you're making love, but that doesn't apply to rape play scenes, right? Second, what should I have done or what should I do if this happens again? Determining, as you did, as you listened to this, no, no, get off, stop, screaming, scuffling, go on, Continuing to listen and determining uh, by listening to that, the, the male voice, that it was her boyfriend that she was scuffling with and who was on top of her and prompting her to scream no, no and stop doesn't mean it wasn't potentially rape. A, a woman can be raped by her male partner, by her boyfriend, by her husband. So in this 
situation, even if I was sure that it was her boyfriend, I would have called the cops. And if they are rape play scenario fantasists, then having the cops show up and bang on the door will just make it seem that much more exciting and real of a rape scenario, perhaps. Maybe that would add to the fun if indeed it was fun. But screaming and yelling and banging on the doors and you know the woman and the man coming to the door and having a muffled conversation uh, and assuring the person in the hallway uh, – Presumably that it, everything's fine and nothing was happening. Even that doesn't necessarily prove that your neighbor wasn't being sexually assaulted by her boyfriend. People have been known to cover for their assailants when they're in a relationship to – because of fear or terror, lie in that moment and deny that what was happening was actually happening. So this is an instance where I would err on the side of calling the police and then if it was – Actual rape, the police are in a better position to judge if the truth is being told. They probably encountered situations like this before. They might separate them and question them separately. And then there's the added bonus. If, if it was an inconsiderate rape play scenario gone asshole, as you say, I have said, I repeat the musical. I go to musicals for all my life lessons. You can be as loud as the hell you want when you're making love. But that does not imply to loud rape play scenarios that can be traumatizing for other people in the building who may have experienced sexual assault themselves or just deny them the sleep that they need or panic them unnecessarily – they're less likely to continue engaging in that kind of asshole, inconsiderate rape play scenario if they know that a consequence is the police showing up and separating them and questioning them and ruining their rape play scenario lovemaking session. So I would have called the police either way, actual rape potentially or rape play scenario. Either way, I would have left it to the police to determine what the fuck was going on and again, Guarantee you, if it was just play, they'll figure out a way to play it elsewhere or play it more quietly the next time they want to play it if their neighbors called the cops on them the last time they played it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old bisexual woman who's had plenty of sex with guys and never had sex with a woman. That second virginity used to really bug me, but now I'm more relaxed, dreaming that it will happen eventually. About a week ago, I went out on a date with a new guy who I'd been talking to quite a lot. But after the date, it was apparent that things weren't going to work out romantically between us. We've continued to talk, though, and as we discussed before, I had the opportunity to have a threesome with him and his friends with benefits. This woman and I, who I find very attractive, would start things off and then he would join us. My question is this. I feel that as a bisexual woman, it is somehow politically incorrect to begin to more fully explore this aspect of my sexuality in front of a man for his pleasure. Am I right in thinking that or should I just go for it? The question isn't whether it's politically correct to have your first girl-on-girl uh, -girl experience in front of this guy and his potential drawing of pleasure from the optics. The question is, do you want to do this? Is, how, is this how you want to get with a girl for the first time? Does it turn you on? Does the scenario turn you on? You say there wasn't a romantic possibility, not a romantic attraction to this guy. But were you sexually attracted to this guy? Is he somebody that you could see having a three-way with? That's what's on the table, a three-way with him. And what's in it for you? A three-way with him and his friend, the girl, whoever she is. If you're into the girl and you're into him and – you're either indifferent to or aroused by the prospect of losing your girl-on-girl -girl virginity in this context, fucking go for it. You don't have to submit it 
to approval. You don't have to drop a plan and send it to the like bisexual politburo to get a stamp of approval or the LGBTQ, LFTS, GQIP community to be approved. Do you want to do it? Do you feel safe with them? Is this a way that you would enjoy losing your girl-on-girl virginity? Does it diminish it in any way that there is a man in the room who is also being pleased by it? If you're being equally or as pleased by it as he is, nothing is being taken away. It's no less a girl-on-girl experience for that reason just because there happens to be a dude in the room who helps set it up who's getting off on it too. You also have the option of the counteroffer. Which is, you know, the first time I get with a girl, I just want to be with a girl. So tell you what, help me set this up, make the introductions. She and I will get together. We'll play. If it goes well and we dig each other, you're invited for the second round. The next time, we'll ha- I'll get together with her. If it clicks and we dig it, I'm totally into the idea of also doing, hey, having a three-way with you, having a girl, girl, guy, three-way. Totally down with that. Just not the first time I'm with a girl. The second time I'm with a girl, abso-fucking-lutely, if all goes well. Then see what he says. But again, politically correct, that is not the filter that you should be applying in this instance with this offer on the table. The filter is do I want to? And there are other filters. Is it safe? You know, is anyone being harmed? And you know, the other sort of standard issue sexual contact filters apply. But the main one in this instance, do I want to? Sounds like you want to. So you might want to go ahead and effing Hey, Dan. My name is Jason. I'm a 20-year-old heterosexual male with a relationship quandary. I've been seeing a girl for the same age, about a month now. Uh, we seem to really like each other. The only problem is she has a boyfriend, and she has been cheating on this boyfriend with me. We've only had sex probably two times within this past month, and any other sexual encounter that's about to happen, we kind of hold off because the fact that she does have a boyfriend... Um, at this point, I don't think she really wants to break up with him or, or break up with me. It seems like she's enjoying the best of both worlds. So I was trying to figure out what I should do, if I should just let it be or walk away or ask her personally to break up with her boyfriend. Um, any advice would be really helpful. Thanks. My question for you is, does your dick come with strings attached or does your dick come with dude attached? If you don't want to fuck a girl who has a boyfriend. Stop fucking a girl who has a boyfriend. There's two ways to accomplish that. You either stop fucking this girl because she has a boyfriend that she apparently doesn't want to break up with or you tell her that you will only continue to fuck her if she breaks up with her boyfriend and begins to have a relationship with you. The price of admission to continue to have access to your amazing dick and the rest of it is ending the relationship, the official relationship that she's in now actually a really easy problem to solve. The question though is are you prepared to deal with the consequences because she may very well turn around and say, bye-bye, bye, lots of guys out there who will fuck me despite the fact that I have a boyfriend and if you won't fuck me despite the fact that I have a boyfriend, bye. And then you don't get to fuck her anymore but you can go find a girl that you can fuck and date who doesn't have a boyfriend and you might be happier with that girl than you are with this one. Yeah, hi, Dan. Uh, I was listening to podcast 373. It's a depressed guy who works in the nightclub who still feels like he's addicted to this girl. I think there are a couple of angles you could have mentioned that you missed. I'm talking to someone who's been through something very much like this. Uh, First off, the guy's worried about his friends. Dude, don't worry about what your friends will think. 
your friends didn't like her to begin with, and your friends probably warned you away from her and you dismissed it because you were so infatuated. Don't worry about that. You know, break it off. Get rid of her number because here's the second thing. It's a, there's a very good chance that you're not interested in her because she's attractive or anything like that. You're interested in her because, in the end, she makes you miserable. And as someone who's going through a depression, you feel the need to find things that reinforce that, you know, the, 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 the view of your life that you have. And you're, you're using her as a form of emotional self-harm. You aren't actually interested in her anymore, romantically or otherwise, you know, aside from, you know, some, some base physical attraction. But you're still allowing her into your life to use her to abuse yourself. Stop it. Stop abusing yourself. Put down the metaphorical knife. Block her number. Tell her to fuck off. You are done with this shit. Stop using this woman to abuse yourself. Hi, Dan. You suspected you were going to get a lot of calls about the woman who worked in the abortion clinic and wasn't sure if she should tell her husband's family, and you were right. Um, I agree with you. It's a tough question, but it seems to me that her biggest issue is the fear that they're going to find out. Uh, and I think keeping it secret just perpetuates that fear. She's just going to keep having nightmares, especially if they live in the same town as her and it's kind of a small town. I think she's going to go throughout her entire life being terrified that they're going to somehow inadvertently find out. And so, like you said, not much to gain, probably not much to lose. If I were her, I would tell them, you know, in a way that she gets to decide exactly what the setting is of that conversation. She gets to decide what words she wants to use to explain it instead of running into them at the bank while she's still in her abortion clinic uniform or whatever the case may be. Uh, so my advice is to tell them just so that she doesn't have to continue dealing with the stress and this fear of them finding out some other way. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a longtime listener and longtime reader, and I'm calling about episode 373 about the uh, gentleman who lost 20 pounds and his girlfriend gained 20 pounds, and then one night they were having sex and he cracked a rib. So I'm a physician. You know, while it's definitely worth looking into reasons why his girlfriend may have gained 20 pounds, the thing that worried me about that story was a young, healthy man breaking a rib doing an activity he had previously enjoyed. Unless his girlfriend is slamming him in the chest with some heavy object when they have sex, or he has whooping cough or some other, like, asthma, crazy, chronic coughing problem that's going to put stress on his ribs, young, healthy men shouldn't be breaking ribs when they are having sex, and he should see his doctor. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 201 2720. We are pulling together for the new year a special sex worker panel edition of the Savage Lovecast. If there's a question that you have that you'd like to put to a panel of sex workers and sex workers' rights activists, call that question in now uh, and we'll see if we can use it on the show. 206 201 2720. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow this week's guest, Dr. Lori Brodo, on Twitter at D R L O R I B R O T T O. Dr. Lori Bruno. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.